Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Some men spend their whole lives seeking out fame and fortune. Others put their nose to the proverbial grindstone each day, do their job, and try and do it well, fairly and with integrity and with passion. They don't seek fame or fortune, merely the satisfaction of a job well done. This is true on the assembly line or in the highest reaches of corporate America or government or even espionage. Often when these two kinds of men clash, the collateral damage can be substantial. My guest Bill Binney was, as far back as the 1960s, one of the NSA's most distinguished analysts. He had an almost sixth sense for understanding the mathematics behind patterns of contacts and webs of relationships that would prove to be even more valuable than the content itself. As his distinguished career with the NSA progressed, he would begin to combine these skills with the evolution of the digital age. It was, and he might disagree with this, the perfect coming together of a man, his talents, and the technology of the time. The problem is his superiors had other ideas, ideas about seeking fame and, more importantly, fortune. The clash would fire up his courage as a whistleblower, but it may also have cost the nation thousands of lives on 9-11 and beyond. This story, Bill Binney's story, has recently been told in a new documentary out on Netflix entitled The Good American. And Bill Binney is here today to talk to us about this powerful slice of American history that is still very much a part of our search for safety and for privacy. Bill Binney, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Well, thanks, Jeff, for having me. I want to go back to the 1960s, to your early days with Army intelligence, your early work on cryptography, and trying to discern patterns to communications and contacts and networks. It was a time when you really began to evolve the idea that such networks and patterns were almost more important than the content itself. Well, a lot of it, uh, see, when I first got into the business, it was in the military. So uh, I, uh, uh, w w our basic threat then was the, the Soviet Union. That was the big threat in the, in the world to, to us. So uh, that was where I was focused. And, and most, of the, most of everything they did was encrypted. So you were basically looking at... Uh, relationships in, in the ether in terms of communications, of just basically contacts. And so uh, you, you, you were working basically with what was what we now call uh, metadata. Uh, back then, we used to call them uh, just uh, network analysis or net analysis or just uh, an analysis of, of uh, military uh, contacts, basically. And uh, that meant you had to look at the relationships and patterns of relationships to try to interpret what it meant. Um, and that's, that's basically how it started. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, it meant that you could look at a lot of data just uh, on a superficial basis, looking at just the metadata and the relationships. And that's the kind of uh, approach that transitioned right into the digital age, too, because even if you... Uh, even if you couldn't read the encryption, you could still get uh, ma massive amounts of intelligence out of things. Because it, if you had something that was in clear text, you know, you'd have that one item, and you look at the content, and you'd be reading that. But it still didn't. It still didn't give you the the perspective of your entire uh, range of activity. Whereas if you looked at the metadata, you could see, uh, you can see whole or your whole community of who you who you're interacting with and how often and. Uh, you could see things like if you uh, had medical problems, what what doctors you were seeing. You could uh, you could basically assume some types of medic or certain types of medical problems depending on their specialties, things like that. Mm -hmm. 
and you and you could uh, see what things you buy and just it's a it's a it's similar to what companies are doing today except mm-hmm. uh, the companies are looking at the individuals only uh, and that that that's primarily to sell you something uh, whereas uh, if you're looking at intelligence you're looking at groups of individuals or groups of people who are who are uh, uh, actively pursuing uh, dope smuggling or money laundering or weapon smuggling or uh, any kind of terrorist type activity or uh, pedophilia or any kind of uh, criminal activity of that nature, but it's groups of people who are involved at that point. And using those methods, you were able early on to, to ascertain things that were beginning to happen, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, the Yom Kippur uh, War, <clears throat> and even the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79. Yeah, that, to me, uh, those things, once you have the understanding of the patterns that you're looking at, then it becomes pretty clear what become what is a real threat as opposed to what is not and uh, that's basically the con that that's basically what intelligence is supposed to do it's supposed to uh, give you advance notice of intentions and capabilities uh, unfortunately today they seem to have lost that uh, perspective now they're pretty much doing a forensics job which is a police job after the attacks like for example in uh, terrorist attacks here in europe or well, back in the United States, uh, they basically come in after the fact and say, "Oh, yeah, we knew I, they, we knew this guy was a bad guy, or you know, he had all these connections, and we knew he was uh, we we knew he was on our watch list or something, you know, and we, we were concerned about him, but they didn't, uh, they weren't following them close enough to be able to stop the attacks, and the reason they weren't was, of course, because the their uh, policy of taking bulk acquisition of data on everybody in the planet." which meant that you, you you had to dive into this ocean to try to find the fish, you know. That's the problem. And that's that's basically what they're doing, still doing today. And, you know, that's why they're still having trouble stopping anything. Even then, when these things became clear to you and, and some of your colleagues at the time, there was reluctance on the part of higher-ups to believe it or to act on it. Well, yeah, and part of the problem was uh, we... Uh, the way we developed things, we did them very efficiently. That's that was one of our big mistakes. <laughs> so it didn't cost a lot of money. So uh, you may, may, uh, the major managers there at NSA didn't really like that. It didn't support a large organization. It didn't support uh, a big budget. You know, uh, solving the problem was not their main issue. It was uh, also their concern was making sure that the the agencies or the and the and all their contracts and everything increased year after year, so they had a they had a bigger budget to manage. That was the big thing for them, I think. One of the ironies in all of that is that even with the desire to find reasons to spend money and to look for, for contractors to work with, that as you talk about, the NSA was really ill-prepared for the digital age. Uh, they they uh, were uh, basically uh, fat, dumb, and happy thinking the Soviet Union would continue uh, and that would be their major threat all along, so that could justify the existence of a large organization like NSA. Uh, but when they fell apart there in 1990, you know, uh, they got caught at the same time, just before that, before the uh, Soviet Union fell apart, the digital age was starting to explode. So in the late 80s, early 90s, the explosion had already started in terms of cell phones and in and computers and emails and things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the manager at NSA were still thinking in the old mentality, uh, we need to have the Soviet Union around to keep the, the – so we have an opposition out there that we can look at as the threat. Uh, they're doing similar things today, trying to make them act look like a threat. It's an external threat. They're trying to do the same thing again. 
but, but it's uh, it was the uh, whole concept of uh, of uh, we have a threat that will justify our existence, so we don't need to worry about anything else. But when it fell apart, they had to look around to find out where where can we find another justification for our existence, you know. And so that became the uh, international crime, uh, terrorism, and the uh, and the internet and the digital age. So. And you were developing the extension, the digital extension of understanding these patterns that would yep. become this program Thin Thread, and yet because it wasn't expensive enough, because it wasn't really involved with spending huge sums of money, there was a pushback to it early on. Yes, yep. Uh, yeah, and it... Uh... <sighs> We, uh, you see, uh, they were they were asking for uh, something like three point eight billion dollars to start a, a separate program to try to deal with the digital age. So when we came along with a solution like ThinThread that solved that problem for three million two hundred thousand dollars, you know that's always that's all we spent on it, okay? Uh, and uh, that was like from beginning to the point where it's operational at three separate sites, twenty four hours a day for about a year. Uh, so we were clearly demonstrating the capacity and capability to handle all this information. So, but that became a threat to the budget request for 3.8 billion uh, because you go to Congress and ask for 3.8 billion, you have to have a problem. Well, the problem they were alleging was uh, 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 volume, velocity, and variety in the internet and the digital age. Well, that was pretty much the problem we'd already solved. So, they uh, they had to get rid of us. I mean, we even knew at the time from staffers in Congress on the intelligence committees uh, that uh, the, all the companies that wanted to feed on that $3.8 billion were in fact down in the Congress in those committees lobbying to get our program canceled. Uh, and, and without, you know, without any, um, any review by anybody except, except the conversations behind the closed doors in Congress with the contractors they got our program canceled with the cooperation of the NSA management, of course. Talk a little bit about how ThinThread worked, how the program was able to do what it did, <laughs> essentially for, for as little money as, as it did. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it boiled down to this. Uh, we first had, The first problem we had was to be able to sessionize data, that is, uh, take the Internet, which passes data around in packets, and pull all those packets back together to form the original input, like an email or a or a, a phone call, a chat, or something uh, that would come in, and and we'd have to reassemble that that much like your service provider does now, but we'd have to do that online, and then and then be able to look at it, and and uh, we succeeded at doing that at fiber optic rates in 1998, and by doing it at that point, now we could look at the massive amount of data, but you can't take it all in because you did. You'd be like you're doing today. That you would just simply bury everybody with information they couldn't see the threats coming that way. So, what we did was use metadata and the relationships and social networks of people in the in the in the world to able to be able to see into that massive flow of data without looking at the content of the data, but just looking at the metadata. Then we could pull out all the data that was relevant for us to analyze and look at. Uh, by knowing uh, communities or, or individuals who were involved in certain activities, you could do that. And also, you had developmental rules. You could figure out how, who else was involved with them at the same time. And you could do it all online. So that meant you could filter everything right up front. And you never take in data that wasn't relevant. You'd only pull in the data relevant that the targets you want to analyze. And everything else you just let go right by. So that, that fundamentally gave everybody in the world privacy. Not just U.S. citizens, but everybody. Mm -hmm. 
And then once you pull those things, that data in, if there are people involved in that that you don't yet know are actually uh, are participants in activity, what we would do is encrypt their attributes. So once you encrypted their attributes, nobody even inside NSA could tell who they were. That protected uh, the identities of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third thing we had was an automated uh, process to um, monitor who came into our network, who looked at the data, where they went, how long they stayed, what they did while they were there, you know. And, and uh, it basically gave us a monitor to be able to see who was doing the right thing, who was doing the wrong thing, and who, the ability to stop them at any point in time. Uh, and those are the three things they removed from the Thin Thread program and then translated that software forward to do the Stellar Wind program and then eventually how they spied on the entire world. Because there was no, we saw no limit to how much data we could take in and index and manage. There was a turning point that happened around 1999 when Michael Hayden, General Michael Hayden, became head of the NSA. Talk a little about that. Well, he came in uh, March of 1999, I believe it was, uh, or maybe a little later. Uh, but he, uh, he came in with the concept of uh, outsourcing uh, jobs in NSA or, uh, you know, like, for example, the infrastructure uh, they had a separate program to do outsourcing of infrastructure, computer management, data management, and uh, all the communications lines of NSA around the world. So, so when they did that, that was uh, that was like the fundamental foundation for all the activities that we wanted to do. And then it, they just kept uh, kept that outsourcing concept going. Uh, they even outsourced some language uh, translations and things like that. So that uh, or functions they felt could be outsourced, um, and uh, that fundamentally was moving, moving into an area where uh, con- contractors were taking over jobs that that uh, required you know some degree at least of experience in, in terms of intelligence production to realize what you really needed to do there, and uh, when they did that, they were giving it basically people who had no idea what the concepts uh, of intelligence production are all about, so they. They lost some capability by doing that, and then fundamentally, they also lost the management capacity of even of all the data they had. Because if you looked at it, uh, Edward Snowden who was a contractor, uh, and he's one of many. Uh, Martin was another one. You know, uh, contractors who were really involved in maintaining the knowledge and understanding that's accumulated inside NSA. Then that that's. Uh, that that's a kind of a dangerous thing to do because these they work for companies that have many facets, you know, and and, and the mili- industrial espionage can be easily done then, which especially if you're collecting all the data on everybody in the world, including all the companies in the world, then uh, you know uh, that's uh, certainly a hazard. It also is a hazard in terms of uh, the compromises that could occur. So, uh, which we've witnessed and are continuing to witness. I you know that was one of the problems with outsourcing. One of the things that that also happened is that some of these contractors, some of these executives from these outside contractors, were brought in at the highest levels of, of the NSA. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. That's right. For uh, well, for example, in the uh, Trailblazer case, uh, initially uh, uh, Bill Black came in as the, and he was hired directly in from from SAIC, directly to be the. Uh, uh, as a vice, pre- he was a vice president. SAIC at, at was SIC. SAIC was one of the outside contractors. Right, right, and they they hired him in to be deputy director of NSA, and then they hired uh, uh, Sam Visner in to be uh, the head of the uh, transformation office inside NSA. They managed all the large contracts, uh, 
that NSA was going to let them to outsource and monetize. And so when it came time for the Trailblazer program, I mean, the first uh, the contract, uh, first contracts were let to SARC and for about uh, $280 million or something like that in the first year. Um, and then it simply went up from there. At one point, Hayden comes to you and, and basically essentially asks you to spend more money. How can you use more money? When uh, uh, the, they first formed the transformation office, a friend of mine was the chief of that office at the time. Uh, and he, he knew what we were doing down there. So he sent his deputy down to, to talk to us about, uh, you know, he actually came down and said, uh, uh, what, what could you do if we give you $1.2 billion? And so we... <laughs> We, I mean, after spending $3 million to do a program, you know, what are you going to do with $1.2 billion? You know, that's kind of a jump in, in budget. So we, we said, well, take a little time to figure out what to do. And we took a few, a few days and uh, came back and said, well, you know, we could, we, could, we could upgrade and modernize the entire world and everything back here at NSA and all that uh, around the world. And, uh, but uh, we could only spend maybe $300 million of that, so maybe a little over that. So <laughs> he said, well... He went back and said, that's great. And then he went away and he came back down and said uh, the next week and he said, well, you guys did such a good job there with that thing. Well, how about 1.4 billion? What can you do with that? <laughs> so, so he was trying to push money at us to try to spend it. Mm-hmm. But that was the transformation office. So once uh, Hayden found out about that, he, he uh, basically removed him. So he put a new person. That's when Sam Bisner came in after that to take over. He needed another contractor to take over and do uh, what the contractors needed to do. Talk a little bit about how what you were doing paralleled the evolution of digital technology itself and how you were managing that within the context of ThinThread in your program. Well, a lot of it, uh, we, uh, if we could, we, what we would do is look around in the uh, commercial environment, see if there's any software that would do uh, jobs that we saw would uh, we needed to do with our data and so on. Um, a lot of things like... Uh, using uh, different tools to open up uh, attachments and look at attachments and th- see what, what's in them, those kinds of things we would, we would take in leverage. Uh, you could, you know, we, we were pretty cheap about it, so some of, the, some of these products, you know, cost only 37 bucks a copy, and, you know, we wanted to do, uh, we wanted to do, uh, uh, you know, a few hundred things all simultaneously. We'd go buy a few hundred of these products, you know, and just put them online, and and substitute that instead of instead of developing software from the beginning. Generally, the people in uh, in the uh, technology area prefer to develop the technology from the very beginning uh, by themselves, not leveraging what's commercially available. So that meant their budgets had to be so much bigger because in order to do that, um, you know, they would spend something on the order of uh, $25 a line of code. So that was kind of the average, I think, cost for a contractor to do a line of code. So if you multiply that up, you had 100,000 lines of code, you know, $25 a line, just to do a, 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 a something that you could, you could uh, sub- substitute for it by buying a $37 a piece product. That's the way we took that. That's the route we took as opposed to developing the software. And then we just, uh, if we needed to, uh, we had certain software we'd have to develop ourselves, which we did. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, it was limiting it to that which we only, only that which we had to do. Not, uh, and 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 uh, uh, they, we we did that simply by looking around at the commercial environment and see uh, what's what's there and uh, and take advantage of it, leverage it. That's how we could keep it so cheaply. 
And talk about the attitudes that were coming from the top, people like Sam Visner, who you mentioned before, who would come out of, uh, out of this company, this software company, and a little bit about the attitude that, that money would be around for everybody, that, that just don't worry yeah. about it, there'll be plenty of money. Uh, well, Sam came from a commercial environment, and uh, commercial companies uh, uh, in general, I mean, that was my experience with all the contracting I'd, I'd been involved with or, or tried to get going in, inside NSA for about 20 years. <laughs> uh, they seemed to want to move at their own pace. Uh, they, had, uh, they had an agenda, which was, uh, if you looked at it, it was very pretty simple. It was, how do I get the next contract? You know, and it's not a question of uh, it's a question of uh, once they acquire a certain level of bulk in terms of a company, you have to have so much business to sustain that. And so, if you if you go into a project and solve the problem quickly, then you don't have the problem to get more money, so you don't sustain yourself, so you can't get a follow-on contract. Their their whole process was to look at it that way: how can I sustain my business, or how can I grow my business, and and so it boiled down to, and this originally I thought that the entire concept of contractors working for government was uh, uh, their vision statement was aim low and miss because <laughs> they'd always miss. They never solved the problem. Uh, but then I, then after a few years, you know, I, I kind of figured it out. It really wasn't that. It was uh, the whole vision statement for them is to keep the problem going so the money keeps flowing. Mm. And the whole point was you had to have a problem to say you needed more money from Congress to do it. Which and that's the way they fundamentally, almost all of them operate. Which brings us to 9-11. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, 9-11, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, the management at NSA didn't want to deploy the thin thread, which we had proposed to deploy in January of 2001. This is about a little over seven months before 9/11. Um, we wanted to target the uh, all the, all the terrorist uh, operations in the world. So we, uh, I went to the uh, terrorist analysis shop and I said, uh, "What uh, sites produce intelligence that is you, you find useful in analyzing the terrorism problem around the world?" And they gave me a list of 18 sites and. Uh, so I had those 18 sites, and I thought, well, okay, these are now our targets. So let's uh, put together. This was like in November of 2000, and uh, we put together a plan to, uh, to do these deployments in January of 2001. Um, most of it would be done remotely, electronically downloading to, to uh, hardware in the field. So we wouldn't have to physically do it for most of them, but some of them we would. We have to build some software and uh, hardware and put it together for them specifically, because they were unique unique uh, things. So we had to adjust our attack for that. So it would take a little longer to do them, but most of them could be done right up front in just a couple of days. So uh, we made this proposal, and uh, we had said it would only cost us probably on the order of uh, $9 million to do it. Uh, and at that point, it would have taken care of the terrorism problem around the world. But uh, management, of course, seeing the threat to their budget request, uh, decided that uh, it was more important to do the budget than the uh, than to do the mission. That was the unfortunate part, you know. Tell us a little bit about what you discovered post 9/11 when you were able to get back yeah. into your office, essentially. Yeah. Well, after uh, they kept us out for a couple of days there, uh, right after 9/11, and uh, when I got back in, why? Uh, 
I started uh, trying to help to find out, uh, you know, all the background of who did this and all that. And uh, my, my contractors came up to me and told me about a meeting they had had. Uh, and uh, they said, uh, uh, you know, the, the head of the transformation office, Sam, came up and said that, uh, you know, uh, don't. He, he was talking to a small contractor who I'd used. Uh, this was a, a small six, uh, seven man company that was all special people for software and, and uh, some hardware development, but it was all uh, a pretty efficient, small organization. So that, that's what, that's basically the people I used to do the ThinTech program. And uh, so what he did was he came up to him and told him, at least he told me this, he said that, uh, Sam had told him that uh, don't embarrass large companies like, you know, SAIC, TRW, or other kinds of large companies. You don't want to embarrass them. Uh, you do your part. Uh, you'll get your share. There's plenty for everybody. Uh, that was the attitude that uh, management had there. And, of course, uh, at the same time, uh, Tom, Tom Drake was going around with the, uh, Maureen Beginsky, and they were going around the workforce talking to them about, the, uh, about 9-11, how we have to, you know, ramp up and, and go get the bad guys now. And at one meeting, uh, he said that she had said, uh, and it's in the movie, uh, that 9-11 that, uh, was a gift to NSA because now we'll get all the money we want. My whole point after that was they, that they fundamentally, in this entire process, uh, traded the security of the people of the United States and the free world or any, any, you know, any, any country we were supported or allied with or trying to help in terms of stopping terrorism. They traded that, that security for, for money. And when you went back in and looked at some of the patterns on Thin Thread <clears throat> after 9-11, you came to the conclusion that if, if that had been operative at the time, it might have actually been able to, to provide the information that could have prevented it. Oh, yeah, I, I uh, pretty much knew that. Um, but Tom Drake actually proved it because he, after, after uh, see, after 9-11, uh, they started turning the process. They removed the components of ThinThread that they didn't like, like the, the filtering up front, so bring in everything, the protections. No, no protections at all, so everybody was identified. And no monitoring of who's doing what because they might find that people are going to use it badly, like FBI or CIA or somebody like that coming in, or GCHQ, somebody like that. So uh, anybody coming into the database, wouldn't they could come in and do whatever they wanted, you know, whatever the access they gave them. So... And uh, no one could follow up and hold them accountable for anything. So that was they when they removed all that stuff, they they started spying on U.S. citizens. And uh, because we were the closest, okay, so we were the first ones into the bulk acquisition system. Uh, and that meant that uh, we had hundreds of millions of uh, U.S. citizens, the data being taken in. And it started in mid-October of 2001, the second week in October. So at that point, I, uh, I, I, I just said, I, I can't stay here. This is a clear violation of the constitutional rights of everybody. So we can't do this. I mean, I, I just can't be a part of it. So I, I went uh, from that, I went to the uh, House Intelligence Committee to tell them about it. But that was the, that was the, the problem I had. And so that's, that's why, and Kirk Weeby and uh, Ed Loomis left at the same time I did. So we were all... Um, Ed didn't really believe it, but uh, the, our contractors who did it, uh, who set it up for them, were telling me that that's uh, that is uh, what they, uh, they what they were actually doing. So, and later on, of course, the Snowden material came out and said there's the documentation for all of it. So, 
that was uh, that was the uh, the reason I had to leave NSA. What was your reaction when the Snowden material came out? Well, I see. I didn't. I didn't, uh, I didn't take any material out because uh, most of people in Congress, for example, knew that I was the one who was developing all these programs, or involved in many of them, and uh, so <clears throat> I didn't feel like I needed any uh, kind of documentation uh, since since I was kind of the founding father of this stuff. So, uh, but uh, when uh, when and uh, when I was talking about it before uh, before Edward Snowden came out, uh, it didn't really get too much traction because nobody could really believe that that was true. Mm-hmm. And, and so when when Ed, Ed Ed took out and brought all this material out and the documentation, uh, you know that was that was obviously uh, that gave me the opportunity to talk talk in public about those programs that were documented in the material that Edward Snowden uh, released. And you filed a complaint with, with the Inspector General, I guess, around 2002. Talk about that. Yeah, it's a, uh, we actually were pursuing two complaints. Uh, one's the legal one for violation of the Constitution and all that, and that we took to the House Intelligence Committee and also to the – we had tried to see the Chief Justice Rehnquist of the Supreme Court, uh, but that, that never materialized. We could never get to see him. So – that was the one avenue of uh, just constitutional violations, law, and so on. And the other part was the fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption, uh, which is uh, in in your employment uh, regulations. Uh, when you become employed by the U.S. government, there's a section in there that says you are required to report uh, fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption to the Department of Defense Inspector General. And they would give a number. And this this was published at the la- on the last page of the of the monthly um, um, periodicals they would publish in inside NSA and then send it around the workforce. So um, the corruption, fraud, waste, abuse part was uh, we directed toward the inspector general uh, because uh, that that's their function to find that kind of stuff, and that's one of the things they were soliciting. So we uh, we fulfilled our requirement uh, for work, uh, you know, all the requirements there, and the requirements to report fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption to the uh, Department of Defense Inspector General, and that was in September of 2002. Uh, so um, once we filed that, they, they took about 12 inspectors and came back out to NSA and started investigating, and it took them a little over two years to do it. Um, and uh, they, of course, corro- corroborated everything we said in our complaint and much more in terms of the uh, internal NSA attempts to subvert the in- investigation and also the people involved in that. And uh, in fact, the inspector general, uh, chief investigator, said that, to me at one point, he said, he told me he had to put his badge on the table and tell a person that uh, interfering with an inspector general's uh, investigation has with it uh, a five-year jail sentence and $5,000 or something like that, fine. And that's the only, that's the only time they stopped trying to interfere, interfere with their investigation. But most of it has been redacted, and if you go on the web and look at it, it's uh, it's uh, 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 it, the report is DODIG report in zero five dash intel dash zero three, and it's uh, about the trailblazer trailblazer and uh, thin thread requirements. Is I think the title they use. All the rep- substantiated everything we were saying. And most of the report, as you say, has been redacted. And and a lot of eighty percent of what's been redacted is unclassified. If you looked at the side at the top of the paragraphs there, that if there's a U there, that means unclassified. So if you look at it, most of it is that way. 
And the only reason they do that is because, uh, you know, it's too embarrassing uh, and too, uh, too, much of a, uh, uh, too much of an indication of corruption and fraud. And the problem, uh, the problem I see is the uh, Department of Defense. That's in first of all, it's in violation of Executive Order One Three Five Two Six, Section One Point Seven. That is the executive order that uh, that governs classification and uh, and uh, protection of data by the U.S. government. And the president has to sign this every every year. I think they have signed this paper. But uh, in that section, it says you cannot uh, classify maintain classified or not declassify uh, any material that is evidence of a crime, fraud, waste, abuse, corruption, and so on, or you can't cover it up for embarrassment to a person or an agency. And all of those redactions are to cover up all of that. And that's, that's, where, that's where this is a real problem, even for the IG. I, I don't understand why the Department of Justice is not involved in this. You know, this is this was a very clear violation of all the principles and laws of our government. Talk a little bit about what happened in your efforts just to maintain a business after you left the government, and what happened in two thousand seven. Uh, well, between two thousand and uh, the start of two thousand two and two thousand seven, we were uh, Kirk Weeby, Ed Loomis, and I were trying to get a consulting group together. Uh, we our plan was pretty simple. If the uh, NSA didn't want to uh, want to take leverage and use the the technologies that we were developing there, the the automation and the ability to do massive data in a smart way, uh, then we were going to take it to some other department of government and see if we couldn't come back in the other way around and come into NSA from the outside instead of developing inside and moving out. We were going to try to do the reverse. So uh, so uh, every time we went somewhere. Um, uh, and NSA found out about it, they got the contracts terminated. Um, in fact, uh, the SISI uh, staffer who was in charge of of, invest, of uh, overseeing the NSA, there had their account for the House and for the Senate Intelligence Committee. When he found out about one of the ones he wanted us to work on, and when we went there, he, they NSA got that whole contract canceled. So he wanted to have the he wanted to have the uh, the Senate investigate NSA for doing that because that's basically uh, criminal activity, subverting the right to free uh, to uh, uh, pursuit of happiness, if you will, or, or work. So they're interfering with the ability of companies and people to do work for even for the government. They were doing that. So that that he wanted them to investigate. But uh, in 2002, the uh, this is when this occurred. Uh, the uh, the Senate was not prepared to do that. You know, they didn't want to. They didn't want to look like they weren't supporting the grandiose, uh, you know, uh, patriotic war against everybody else that was involved in terrorism. And if you're going to investigate somebody for for some kind of fraud and corruption internally, that's a that's, you know, that's not something they really wanted to get involved with. So, so they didn't do that. But then after that, we went to another place in the Inscom, and they, they basically got that one terminated even before it started. So. Uh, and then we got uh, another one uh, working for an, uh, as a subcontractor for another one of the one of the larger contractors, uh, not for NSA but for another agency in the government. And uh, when they found out about that one, uh, they also found out that the NSA came by and said, "We we don't want you people working with these people." So, uh, and that was what uh, came from. Uh, 
from the other side, they simply said, well, we, we can't uh, embarrass NSA or what have you, so we'll have to terminate the contract. So that's what they did there. And then this was getting on to 2005 and 2006. Then after the New York Times article, we were the prime candidates that they thought did that. Well, <clears throat> they in fact knew who did that. It was Tom, Thomas Tam when, on the Department of Justice lawyer was the one who gave tipped off the New York Times as, as one of the primary ones anyway. Um, and uh, we had nothing to do with that. And they already knew that from the Stellar Wind program where they've been studying all the relationships inside the U.S. for at least four years by that time. And so they knew we had no contact with anybody in the New York Times. And still they wanted to, this was the vendetta, I guess they wanted against us. So they, uh, they uh, decided that we had, to, uh, we had to be the ones investigated and they sent the FBI at us. So, uh, and then the FBI, uh, we took us five years to get the sworn affidavit, by the way, to, to get a, some judge who didn't know anything about the, anything. I mean, he, the, this judge was just totally ignorant of any national security, anything. And when somebody said national security, you know, they, they just say, oh, my goodness, I don't know. Well, I guess I have to sign, you know. That's fundamentally what, what that judge did. Uh, and so uh, the affidavit was clearly a fabrication, and we could prove that. And they, but we didn't know until five years afterward because it was a classified affidavit, and they wouldn't let, let it go. So we had to sue them, basically, to get it. Uh, and uh, uh, so... Uh, after that one, why uh, it was uh, the Department of Justice that took over from the FBI and NSA in terms of stopping us work. The Department of Justice decided they were going to prosecute us under the Espionage Act 1917 and try to put us in jail for 35 years. And here again, they started fabricating evidence. Well, the first two times they attempted that, they told our lawyer they were doing it. Well, we had exculpatory in data on that at the time and said, here's the exculpatory data. And they, they dropped those attempts at Im immediately. But the third attempt, they simply called our lawyer and said that they're going to, um, and this is in late 2009. And so at this time, they called him and said they're going to indict us. Uh, all of us, uh, Tom Drake, Kirk Wiebe, Ed Lewis, uh, Diane Rourke, and myself, uh, for conspiracy to, they were crank, they were manufacturing a charge, okay? They say, they, so they called it a conspiracy to release classified information. Uh, and so uh, what I had been doing over, the t over that period of time from 2007 on, I'd been assembling all the information I could that would show uh, malicious prosecution on the part of the Department of Justice. And when they threatened us with that, I knew immediately I had all the necessary evidence to prove that case against them in a court of law. So uh, what I did was uh, <clears throat> I, I, I didn't even consult my lawyer for this. <laughs> so. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to play a little game here with the FBI and the Department of Justice, or injustice, however you want to put it. Um, so I called Tom Drake because I knew his phone was tapped by the FBI. They were sitting there recording and listening. And so I said, Tom, our lawyers just called us and told us they're going to indict us all for this conspiracy charge, uh, <clears throat> cranking up uh, you know, fabrication against us, and here's all the evidence I have to prove that and show that malicious prosecution on the part of the Department of Justice and I read it all across to him, on the, across the phone to him. And, uh, and uh, then I just, I told him at the end, I said, tell your lawyer that uh, we're going to charge the Department of Justice with malicious prosecution when they take us to court. And then I hung up. <laughs> and, oh, and so I'm letting them stew on that one. And then what happened was I said absolutely nothing at that. Uh, and uh, so then a month later, uh, mysteriously, our lawyer calls and says, hey, the Department of Justice is giving you and Kirk Wiebe letters of immunity. 
So we went from being giant. I know our lawyer had no idea what happened, okay? <laughs> because I never told him what I did. So, so he was he was out in the dark, okay? So I'm sure he had a joke. He said, gee, my, you know, this is great, you know? I didn't have to do anything. At any rate, uh, so eventually we we got the... We got those letters, and they, they and the whole thing was just come in and talk to us, to us to be honest. And we were already doing that anyway, so uh, it was if we didn't, you know. So at any rate, I said, you know, I, I originally didn't want to do it because I wanted to go to court. But our lawyer said, no, you know, I said, you know, if you do this, it'll all be over all at once. You have to worry about it finally. I wasn't worried about it at all anyway. <laughs> so, but uh, so uh, so we met with them, and. Uh, uh, I had to take the opportunity to tell them exactly what I thought of them. And that gave me a face-to-face with the prosecutor, with the head of one of the lead, lead investigators at the FBI, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the yo-yos from the Q2 department of NSA, uh, internal security at NSA. So uh, <clears throat> and I made it perfectly clear that I didn't think very much of them or anything they'd been doing for all the violations of law that they were doing. And the idiot from Q2 said, what, 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 are, what violations of law are they? Well, I mean, he gave me my grand opportunity to tell him exactly what it was, which I did. Mm-hmm. It was like the first, fourth, fifth, and sixth amendments, the constitution, the, the pen registered law, the electronic privacy act, electronic security act, you know, all the regulations and government and uh, laws passed to cover FCC regulations with the, uh, with the internet service providers and the telecommunications companies. You know, just a few things like that. Where did all of this pressure against you and your colleagues, where did it all emanate from? Do you have a sense of that? How high did it go? Um, I think it went to probably all the way to the White House, especially with the uh, what I call Darth, Ch- Darth Cheney. Well, he went to the dark side, so I have to call him something. Darth Cheney, not, not vice president, you know? So I think it went all the way up there and also had a lot of support with the management of the NSA and uh, and obviously the Department of Justice and the FBI fell in line too. Mm-hmm. That included Mueller on the FBI uh, and Comey at the DOJ at the time. And Michael Hayden moved on to the CIA. Of course. I mean, he, he put the Trailblazer program together, spent a lot of money, and it ended up in producing no intelligence, a lot of PowerPoints that, uh, and no capability at all. He, he just used everything we'd already developed. And, uh, and so basically he messed up really big time and he moved up really big time. So I guess that was the principle in our government, mess up, move up. And finally, Bill, what, how much of this is going on still today? How much of this is, is operational today and really impacting the privacy of people today? It's basically all of it, uh, and actually, uh, they're spreading more and more collection areas, uh, collection facilities, capabilities. So, uh, what it means is they have to be, keep building bigger and bigger storage facilities, like the one in Utah, the million square foot facility in Utah. They had to build that one because they were collecting so much data. They and they'd like to keep it all as long as they can. So, they need to need to store it somewhere. So, you need a million square foot storage facility out there in Utah, and then after that one, you know, that one came online in 2013. Uh, and so, so by they were planning ahead, you know, five six years ahead, they're going to need a larger one because they're collecting more and more data year by year, because of the amount of data going around the world is ever increasing. So they have to build a much bigger storage facility. 
So that's why they break ground, break ground for a uh, 2.8 million square foot facility on Fort Meade uh, just about a year ago. I think I remember you saying that it was an NSA official who said to you shortly after 9-11 that it was going to be a gift that would keep on giving for at least 15 years. Yeah, that's right. I said you can milk this cow for 15 years. That was a Sam Visner quote. Yeah. Bill Binney, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on Radio Who, What, Why. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.